Welcome to the Coney News Podcast. My name is Bobby Shaw. On today's episode, I speak with Chef Jeremy Barlow in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeremy has been a force in the Nashville chef scene for over 18 years and has created some amazing concepts, including taste and slowco. Jeremy's also been a champion of food sustainability and creating accountability around sourcing and how the supply chain is managed. We had an amazing conversation that covered a wide range of topics, including the magic formula pop-ups and how they work, are events even worth doing, and how to find efficiencies in the QSR segment and combine it with the fine dining world to define what the next food system will be. And lastly, why food policy matters. Jeremy is a champion of food policy and has done a lot of important work in this area. We also discuss his exciting new concept, Frice Cream, which has been in development on 12 South in Nashville, has already gotten some rave reviews from some pop-ups that Chef Jeremy has done. You don't want to miss this inspired conversation, so here it is, my conversation with Chef Jeremy Barlow in Nashville, Tennessee, on the Cutting Names Podcast. Well, Jeremy, it's just a pleasure to talk to you and, and uh, just to kind of let everyone know on the podcast, um, just kind of a funny story. I was in Nashville. I was in 12 South, and I know you're going to tell the story about what you're doing, but I, I literally was walking down 12 South and I saw this sign, insert chef here. And I'm yeah. just like, what, what, what? You yeah. know, and I was with my buddy, Chris, um, he and I take a trip every year, guys trip every year. And this year it was Nashville. And of course he's never really been. And so I'm showing him all the great spots to go. And of course you have to go to 12 South. And right. So, uh, you know, we're checking everything out and, and, uh, it was either Saturday or Sunday. I can't remember, can't remember which day it was, but, um, anyway, I saw it and I, wrote myself a note i got back to the hotel looked it up i'm like you've got to be kidding me this is the coolest thing ever and right. uh then i found an email on the website at the bottom and so I'm, yep. like, I'm just gonna try to shoot an email and i did you responded right away so which is very gracious of you but uh so that's how i came to know of you and of course i've read about your background and that's part of what i want you to talk a little bit about this morning is kind of who you are and you know about yourself and how you got your start in the industry and just kind of walk us walk us through all that so sure awesome yeah let's do it it's all you go oh go all right so start the industry um i think like most of us crazy restaurant folk <laughs> i fell into it uh you know i grew up on nantucket in the summers wow and started washing dishes when i was about 17 or 18 and quickly moved up to flipping burgers and uh, was um, a tad bit on the wild side. So um, actually attended Vanderbilt University and would cook every summer in between and make all the money I needed uh, sure. to spend during school year. Uh, and because I was on Nantucket, I could make a lot of money because um, I didn't right. have to pay for uh, where I was living. So nice. Um, kind of got attracted to the wild side of the kitchen and it fit the type of personality I had. Um, and about junior or senior year in college, uh, really figured out that any type of academic profession was not suited to my, um, tendencies and to, to uh, your learning style Yeah, that or my ability to sit and focus. I'm much better with, um, lots of things going on and standing and that kind of work environment. Right. Uh, right. and so I was just like, you know, and I really love food. Uh, and, you know, didn't know it as a kid because, you know, I was a super picky eater my whole life 
until I really figured out that, Hey, I kind of want to do this. And then I just like, all right, I'm going to eat anything and everything you put in front of me. And, um, so started really focusing that summer. I stayed and did a uh, summer at, uh, Opryland. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I was also forced to stay for school if I wanted to graduate on time because <laughs> I needed to do a class, but, um, uh, you know, I graduated on time, went back to Nantucket, worked for about a year and then went to CIA and uh, did the two year stint there and just was was all in. I mean, I was bought in from day one there uh, and probably was at school 20 hours a day for the two years I was there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. I love school. So do you remember the point where, you know, you're, you know, you kind of started your career, you know, washing dishes kind of moved up to burger flipping. Right. Yep. And you were doing that. What was the point in there where you realized you're like, I think this might be a thing for me. Like yeah. this might be a career. I mean, in hindsight, you know, there were periods of food kind of throughout my life that I mm-hmm. never really thought about. Like when I was, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 12, I don't remember exactly when I kind of liked doing food stuff. And I went and saw Paul Prudhomme do a uh, food demonstration at this place. I went to high school in Albany, New York. That's where I went to school. Okay. At uh, this place in the Stuyvesant Plaza at the store where Rachel Ray worked. Before wow. Before she went up, it got huge. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's crazy. But yeah, I mean, I remember doing things like that. Um, I mean, once in high school, and this was even before I started flipping, you know, washing dishes. Right. You know, my mother and my grandmother were sick and I ended up trying to do Christmas dinner for, uh, for the holidays for the whole family. And it's like, I just kind of fell into food throughout my life without even realizing it. And then <clears throat> I think just that summer that I moved from dishes to cooking, worked at the same place the next summer and started playing with specials. And I think I just, you know, maybe like the creativity of it. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't know what it was. It wasn't like an aha moment. It was just like, yeah, this is, this is kind of what I'm meant to do, I think. And Yeah. You know, it's just as I hear you talk about it and having worked with, um, you know, a lot of great culinary talent over the years, I've been really fortunate to do that. And most notably, probably the name that everyone would know would be, uh, you know, Steve Ells from Chipotle. Right. Um, and working with Steve every day for 10 years was quite an experience and you know but then just along my career path meeting some other chefs and you know getting to meet dan barber uh oh yeah you know um who who i just have so much respect for and and uh you know just you know uh that hearing you talk about it that the way you connected to the food right uh the way that you felt about the food the way you felt when you were preparing that food for your family on the holidays right all of those things really resonate with me and i think that's such a critical point when you think about food, because, you know, depending on who you talk to and when you talk to them, you know, food is a thing, but, but when you think about food, it's so deeply personal and it's oh, so yeah. intimate. Um, and I can hear that coming through in your story for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, food is, is the, uh, life connection, right? Like every, everybody, everybody, every culture, all of their experiences, particularly with family, but even with everywhere else, center around food. That's I mean, right. It's just, it's just how the world works. It's like, and that stems from, you know, back in the days when, uh, when we went from hunter gatherers to, you know, civilizations, and it started with farming, which brought us together, which brought the community together around bounty, 
and eating. And I mean, it started way back then when we really started to form our civilizations and, um, and it hasn't changed, you know, the, the way that groups are made up have changed, right. but everything still happens around the table. Absolutely. I love yeah. that. Everything happens around the table. Uh, Jeremy, you'll learn about me. I'm a quote collector. <laughs> so okay. I will likely quote you on that. Um, yeah, I that's love fine. That because, uh, it, it really does. I yeah. mean, every important conversation happens around yeah. some table somewhere. Yeah. I mean, and where I do business think, meetings happen? You it, know, Lunch absolutely. hundred percent. You know, 100%. when you get engaged, you take them out to dinner and then that's you get right. engaged or that's you right. this, and then you get engaged and you know, everything it's all, it's all food is at the center of it all. I mean, how many great concepts, how many great brands have been started over a dinner or a drink at a bar on the back of a napkin, right? Yeah. You, know, you always hear the back of the napkin story. Um, and, but it's, 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 uh, uh, it's real. I mean, <laughs> those things happen in those type of settings. Cocktail so. napkins are more powerful than notepads. hundred percent, hundred percent. That's awesome. Well, that's an amazing story. That's an amazing journey. I know it's only a very small, small part of your journey. So right. I, I know you've done some amazing things in Nashville. So kind of, kind of start with what you started doing in Nashville, kind of, kind of where that went and, and then up through what you're doing right now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, post culinary school, got to Nashville, thought I was some super stud badass. And uh, <laughs> of course you did. To, yeah. Cause who does it at 24, whatever, however old I was, I think it was 24. <laughs> And took a sous chef job at a, a restaurant that was opening and uh, just absolutely got my ass kicked for three months. Because the reality was, you know, I had worked in restaurants. I had done almost a year at Blackberry Farm. And, wow. uh, um, but I hadn't really like gotten in and worked the line. Yep. And like just at a super busy place and gotten my ass. Like I hadn't done that yet. Right. And I was, you know, trying to be a sous chef managing cooks that have been doing that for years and i mean i had a lot of knowledge from school so like you know how food works all these things i was really excelled in all of that i mean by no means did i know everything but i, I really paid attention to school i loved it so I, I mean i soaked it all in <clears throat> and um for three months just got my ass handed to me and uh and then kind of fell into my own figured out working on the line and really took over and basically ran that kitchen for the rest of the year. Um, and I mean, but that was the eye opening. I worked a hundred hours a week yep. every day for a full year. I think I maybe had three days off in the year. I mean, I would get off at two in the morning from closing the late night shift and come back at five 30 to do brunch by myself. Cause the owners wanted to do brunch. I was like, I'll do it. You know, totally right. not smart, but you know, that was just, you know, the, the classic, you know, culinary mentality, you know, you're all in, it's just like, it's work and that's all you do. And, um, so stayed there for a year, went and did corporate at a steakhouse, which sucks, but was also a fantastic experience, you know, corporate run, all of that stuff. Right. Really learned the pluses if there were any and the minuses about corporate, uh, structure and corporate entity, which, you know, in the future will probably help me out, but I didn't like it back then. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and then went and uh, started investigating, kind of opening up my own place with some of the guys I'd met at that first restaurant. Uh, didn't quite come through, took another job, worked my way up, ran that kitchen for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> and then left there and opened my own restaurant, Taste, uh, 
which was in 2003. So I'd been in Nashville for you know, five and a half years or so, six years. Um, and, uh, and so when we opened, you know, it was with a guy that I'd run that second restaurant with, he was a front of the house guy. And we were, you know, a fancy fine dining restaurant in Nashville. And at that point, if you weren't a steakhouse, there were maybe three of us right. that were doing fine dining in Nashville. And it was hard. God, that's crazy to think about now. That's oh, crazy God, yeah. to think about. It now. was, oh, I mean, I'll tell you my favorite story of Nashville. So please, we've been open a couple of years, crushing it. We were one of the, you know, we were super successful, couldn't get a table, all that good stuff. Um, and, uh, and I'm trying to be current with food trends. I'm trying to do cool things, new things. And I put pork belly on as an appetizer. And I mean, oh my God, it was like I was serving freaking uh, ants and crickets, which of course, even now is totally fine. Yeah. But serving foie gras or something like that's that. That's what yeah. it was. Yeah. It, people are like, well, what the hell is this? I'm like, well, what's pork belly? I'm like, yeah. Do you like bacon? I mean, the dish was even called bacon and eggs because it was like a play on, you know, pork and quail or something. Right, right. Was, but, right. You know, I mean, it wasn't crazy out there, but it was pork belly. Couldn't sell it. Couldn't give it away. Had to take it off. Waited six months or nine months. Put it back on. Nothing. Couldn't give it away. And this is like, you know, packed dining room every night. Right turning tables, doing plenty of people. And we were like, people came to us because we were like the fancy food place. Sure. Nothing, couldn't give it away. Two rounds of that, you know, two years later, uh, after the second round, it's on every menu in the city. Of course. And, uh, you know, everybody knows about it. You know, pork belly is the coolest thing to do. But so many, so many of those experiences at Taste. You know, what's so funny about that, you know, Jeremy, is I, I was just in Nashville, as you know, and I, I I ate a lot of food and I've had some great experiences, but I, I want to say in like two or three of the restaurants I went, they had pork belly on the oh, menu yeah. as an appetizer. Oh yeah. 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 It's like automatic everywhere now. Right. It's a thing. Yeah. It's actually even hard to get pork belly. If you, if you source locally <laughs> yeah. because so many people want it and you know, everybody's right. now sourcing locally, which is a, another thing that didn't used to happen, but <laughs> so yeah. So, so about four years into taste, we, yeah. we, um, I, I, that was kind of the epiphany that I had, you know, the, uh, I was sourcing food and, and and trying to find better product. Um, and a buddy of mine who had, uh, was the sous chef came in after about a year, we had been talking about it that whole year because he came from working with Daniel, uh, Patterson in San Francisco. Okay. And, uh, and we were talking about local sourcing and all this and, and I'm like, you know what, we need to, why aren't we doing this? You know, and, and right. the reality was, was that nobody was doing it in Nashville. So where the hell do you get it? So I started driving around on Saturday mornings, looking for farmer's markets. Um, we had one downtown, but it was a flea market more than a farmer's market. There were some right. farmers there, but it but, wasn't what it is now. No. And there were no other farmer's markets. And so what I would find is, like a fruit stand or a guy right. in a truck on the side of the road. Right. And we kind of built that from finding a couple of farmers we could buy from regularly and then ended up 
you know, getting two that we used on a regular basis, still no meat at that point, nobody doing any local proteins, no local dairies. And now there's hundreds of local farmers, four dairies, and more meat people than I know what to do with. They're now competing with each other. I mean, it's crazy. And now everybody is sourcing. And I by no means was the impetus for everybody doing that. Sure. But at the time, we were really starting to build that supply chain in Nashville. Uh, And it, it was crazy. And that was really the focus of taste for the last, you know, eight years of its existence was building up that local supply chain. I became super involved with that, with, you know, being environmentally friendly. Right. Uh, I became very active on the food policy scene and, you know, again, noticing that food's at the center, um, you know, realizing that by focusing on the food system, we have the ability to affect all these other issues happening on a societal level as far as, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't have my speeches. In right, 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 right. Um, economic issues, diversity issues, health issues. You know, I've actually got um, in my presentation that, you know, I wrote a little book about it all. But uh, in my presentation, um, you know, I've got a, a web with food at the center where you can connect it all. And um, I love that. Yeah, it was actually I, I need to have that thing more accessible because it was pretty awesome. Um, and what's the name of your book? Uh, chefs can save the world. Wow. Yeah. That's I don't awesome. Know if it's still available because I haven't really paid a lot of attention to it. I think I have an old box right here. I love it. I would love yeah. to get a copy of that. I, I, uh, you know, and again, I mean, one of the benefits of my time with Chipotle, I think was that, well, and I guess let me back up a second. You know, you may not have been the impetus for it all, but you were definitely early on the scene with it all in Nashville. I mean, you know, you definitely were. And, you know, you could argue maybe you're a little early, but I'd rather be a little early than be late. Right. Right. I was definitely early. You you know, a little earlier (laughs) to the scene. And you know, certainly my time at Chipotle, we were definitely early. Right. You know, Steve, Steve had a vision to change the way the world thought about and ate fast food. That 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 was his vision. And you know, from coming from um you know, his background and working as a, working as a uh, sous chef. And and for three months, he tells a story about all he did was wash and peel potatoes. And it's just like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? Right. But it's all those kind of like, you know, foundational things, right. That right. you do, right. That you learned. Yeah. Well, by the time he started Chipotle and he had this big, big vision, everyone was like, what, you know, and like, what are you talking about? You know, so he was definitely, you know, we were definitely early on. But I say all that to say that um, those things matter, right? What you did obviously matter. Look around Nashville now. Yeah, it's crazy. It's unbelievable, right? Like I'm in Nashville a considerable amount. And there are restaurants that were there this time that I just never heard of. And some of them opened in October of last year. Some have been around a little while. I just hadn't been there. But I mean, there's just, there's so many choices. There's so many culinary experiences you can have in Nashville. Yeah, too Um, many. (laughs) Right, Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but I say all that to say this about your book. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like chefs can change the world. Like, oh yeah. And the way that you're talking about food and the way that it affects the, you know, things on the economic landscape and, you know, affects, you know, uh, even all the way to school lunches, right? Yep. Like how, how all of that happens. And, and it's, it, it's, it, 
it is the web that you described, like, you know, the web, you know, with the food in the middle and how yeah. it extends out. So that's pretty awesome. Pretty yeah. Awesome. Really yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's, you know, and the, the basic premise is, uh, you know, it's, it's not built on fancy philosophy and pretty pictures of farms. It's built on, you right. know, food business and the dollar changes things, right? Yep. Like yep. The, it's the long lines of the vote, vote with your fork, but it's on the food side, you know, at the time I wrote the book, it came out in 2013 or so. Um, and it was, you know, 1.6 billion spent on food, no trillion, sorry. I can't even remember my numbers. That's how long I used to give presentations on it. This, but that's how long I said 1.6 trillion on food, Sounds half right. of which is eaten outside of the home, wow. and, which means chefs control those dollars. So we wow. control 50% of the food dollar, but it actually even goes more than that because now you have chefs running, you know, these fancy gas stations and all yep. the people buy food from them you know, at Whole Foods and all these grocery chains where people are buying prepared food from those guys. So it even extends into the grocery stores and how things are developed and sold. And chefs are at the basis of that. And so if, as, a, as a community, we raise our next generation of chefs on proper sourcing. And it doesn't have, I'm not talking, you know, your buddy with the farmer, we have to do contract farming on at least a medium scale level with regional production to make it work. You know, so we're no longer following that, uh, you know, source everything from California Mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. you know, the organic hydroponic farms or even those organic green farms are doing just as much damage to the environment (laughs) as the high chemical farms because they're killing so much, you know, they're killing the dirt, which is the real issue. So, I mean, there's no easy solution, right? But from what I've seen and everything I've gathered over all the years, you know, if we can, you know, take what we've learned from from fast food, yep, which is how we learn to centralize production and master economies of scale, and just you know tweak it to regional, where we're doing the same thing but regionally, you know, we will increase jobs. We will decrease environmental, you know, injury and, you know, we'll do all the positive things we need to do and still supply everybody with quality food and at an affordable level. Do you find, you know, you kind of touched on something there that I really want to talk about, want to explore as you're talking about developing that next generation of chef, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm so passionate about that next generation of leader, that next generation of chef, right? Like the people that are coming up behind us. Do you, do you find as you're working with those individuals now that there's a heightened sense of how important this is, or do you find yourself having to educate them along the way? Or do they already have a sense of, look, I know this is important. This is not 20 years ago, right? This is not 2000. It's not 1995. And we've got to start to do this thing differently. Do you find that? Yeah. Or, okay. So, so, you know, I've been out of the fancy chef and kitchen world for quite a while now. Right. Um, so after taste, you know, I moved into Sloco. Yep. Which uh, similar to Ch- Chipotle, the idea was reinventing fast food. Yep. Basically taking all the positives of fast food efficiencies, um, you know, 
similarities of look and menu. And I developed a, a concept that literally was the same everywhere, yet always different based on what was grown that. and available in that area. I love that. Uh, and so and it was, I mean, it worked. The numbers worked. You know, it was, um, you know, it was high food cost, high labor, which was a downsize. But as growth happened, both of those things would decrease because you could, with a hub and spoke model, yep. regionalize production. And so have a chef that didn't want to work 24-7 and wanted to work 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, could produce what he needed to to ship out to the spokes that the stores were. So I even had that long-term decrease played out, but I was not a blow it up and expand it guy. That's not my skill set on the business side. So we got to three and had some conversations and it, it didn't work. But, you know, like Chipotle had issues because they were big yep. trying to figure out how to source large. We were small and trying to get bigger and just it was the business that missed us, but we were going to build our expansion would happen as the um, supply chain grew. Right. Exactly. That's how Sloco would expand. And eventually within a region, that supply chain would be enough to supply a school system or any of the other, um, you know, larger commodity, larger cafeteria based entities that were the ones that were complaining that local doesn't work for us. There's no way it can work. We can't do this. We can't do that. And so Sloco's high philosophy purpose was not only are we a kick-ass fast food sandwich joint, yep. um, but, uh, you know, the greater purpose is we'll help rebuild the food system. You can change the world. Yeah, you can change the world. Yeah. They did exactly the same thing. They just took it from a regional system and centralized it and everybody followed it. Yep. You're exactly right. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So, Slowco was three, four years or what was uh, it, it was like 10. Was it 10? Wow. Yeah, awesome. it was open a long time. And, um, and I had, re- I mean, I had a good run. I've been very fortunate my whole career with great staff that stayed with me for a long time. And as Slowco got to an end, I lost like three key players within like six months and uh, went on vacation anyways. I probably shouldn't have, but uh, went on vacation anyways, which is part of the reason I went from fine dining to a sandwich shop. And just came back and it was so worse than I ever could have imagined it was going to be. I mean, I had some scary thoughts and it was like, it couldn't have gone worse. And I shut it down for like a week, fired everybody, rehired a whole staff, worked every day, open and close for almost a year. And I was done. And I was like, I'm done. I can't like, I'm done with restaurants. I work too hard. And, you know, because as a sandwich shop with a low check average, it just, the revenue was not enough. I wasn't making enough money for the amount that I was working. And so I sold it and tried to retire, which was an epic failure. And within a year, about a year and a half, I was back in and took the store back over the place I sold it to went bankrupt. Fortunately, I owned the location. Nice. uh, Yeah. Cause we were in 12 South before it was cool. So yes, exactly. Into, yeah, we got into 12 South before it was cool. So both living and uh, commercially, right. so we were able to own both places, uh, which is a huge benefit. But I mean, I went on a tangent from your story, but but I haven't, so I haven't had a lot of young culinary, 
you know, those young upstart chefs, people are going to be fine dining. But what I have had is a lot of young, passionate people. And this generation of the last, you know, five or eight years, they're aware. Yeah. They are, they're not going to McDonald's. They're not going to the fast food places. They are paying attention to how places source, right. what they do. And I think that was one of the draws of why I was always able to hire, you know, and I basically hired college kids or just after college with little to no food experience. And we made everything in house. We made our own bread. We made our, own, we broke down whole animals, cured our own meats. I mean, we did everything. And, you know, I take a college kid who's 23 and they're like, oh, I like to get up early. I'm like, hey, you want to come in and be the bread person? And I'd spend a week and a half or two weeks with them making bread. And I'd teach them how to make bread. And they would come in and be the bread person. And when they left, they knew how to make bread. You know, they, they knew how to do all these other things. I'd teach a couple of other people, like, let's break down this pig. Like, this is where it comes from. And we do it in the window on 12 South. So, you know. Wow. You've been on 12 South, right? Oh. So imagine the farmer pulling up and we're pulling a 250-pound hog out of the back of the truck and carrying it across the street to bring in the only door we have, you know, the front door of Sloco and drop it on the table. And on a, I would purposely do it Friday afternoons, Saturday afternoon. When it was hopping. Uh, when it was yeah. hopping. So people would yeah. be like, what is that guy doing? <laughs> There's a giant pig on that table. <laughs> I love it. Pig head up. People would take pictures, you know, it was a show, but it, it proved a point too. Cause with the, the marketing we had inside and the message we were we were trying to put out right it went along with the story we were telling well and it tells the story of real food done mm-hmm. slow <laughs> the way it's meant to be you know and uh i love that <laughs> i wish i got to see that i would love to find the wall and he slapped that pig on the table that's oh, awesome. yeah, it was great it that's was great awesome. and you know who loved it the most you know it the it was older people mm-hmm. who were used to that from their you know from pre-50s right and young people the people yeah. that are freaked out were the 25 uh-huh. to 55 or 60 uh-huh. were the ones that are like oh my god that's so gross which is essentially right the generation of people that have no idea where their food comes from absolutely the kids anybody under 25 loved it you well, know, maybe it, you yeah. know one or two would be grossed out but they spent the younger kids loved it Look, I have five kids and uh, four of them are 20, let's see, 24 down to 16. I can tell you they love it. Like they're all about it. Right. And um, that transparency around sourcing and not only the sourcing, but how it was grown, like, you know, who grew it, right? Like, you know, what type of labor was used to make that happen? You know, all those things are your hundred percent right. They're incredibly, it's incredibly important to a whole generation of people. Um, that's amazing. That's, that's awesome. So you had Sloco going till, till, till when? 18. Till 18. Got it. Yeah. So bring us up to speed. What do you been doing? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, attempted to retire. Epic failure. Uh, just so you know, I tried that too. I tried that yeah. too. Epic failure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was a year and three months for me and I was back in it. So, yeah, it was a great year and a half. And I did, uh, you know, I did some custom woodwork and steel work with a buddy where 
he's the master. I was the bitch. I just held things and sanded. <laughs> you know, that was my role. And it was, it was awesome. I'm like, I mean, and honestly, it was very much like kitchen work because like, yeah. here's our list of what we have to get done today. Let's right. knock all this out. And, you know, it's hard work and you're dirty at the end of the day. And, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. But, uh, and we ironically were building stuff for restaurants. <laughs> of course you were. That's yeah. so funny. Uh, my buddy uh, who owns a restaurant across the street was opening up a couple other places. And so we did, we did all this work for his places. Um, wow. And, uh, and the yoga stop that's like a block away from where the store is. Yeah. We did some stuff for them and the, uh, the dress shop that's right next door to the store or the, yeah, whatever that store is, we did stuff for them too. So, I mean, we basically stayed in the neighborhood and built stuff for these guys and, um, took it back over pre COVID. So this is like December of 2019. Got it. Uh, and started doing pop-ups essentially to pay the bills. Yep. Uh, and the pop-up game after a few rounds, uh, was really going pretty well. And I think it was mostly people once I left kind of, yeah, might, might sound cocky, maybe realized what they had while I was there. When you, and when you took it back, was it still Sloco branded? Was it still, still branded Sloco or so actually when we took it back, there was no branding. No, okay. There was no sign. There was no name. I remember this part of the story. It's just so there good. were no consistent hours. <laughs> um, I used the Sloco social media, which I had not done away with. Gotcha. Uh, because I had followers on it. And so sure. I just started posting on that. So I had the Sloco social media and my personal social media, which all the social media experts say is a terrible idea. And I should never do that. And I should never post the same thing on both of them. And I do all that shit all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, no sign, no anything. And right. so we went the first few months with nothing and the pop-ups were going well. And so we started uh, leasing it to some chef buddies. We're like, well, can I use your store for this and that? And I'm like, sure, come on. And so one night I had a pop-up when the bar was full and when everybody could crowd inside. Wow. Because uh, it was wintertime. Yep. You know, one of my customers was like, man, you need to call this like insert chef here or something. I'm like, okay. So we started jokingly calling it that. <laughs> and, uh, and we ran with that, you know, and it was. I think, that is the best. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, that's the way it happens around my world for sure. I love it. And uh, so end of January, beginning of February, we're starting to fill up a little bit and we have a lot of months of business, a couple months of pop-up business between myself and other people coming in. And I'm like, wow, this could be like a real viable business that solves my problem of not having to work all the time, which in, you know, the work life balance in this business is almost impossible. So how do you, how do we figure out how to make that happen? Right. And, um, and I'm like, this is this is a real possibility. I can come in and cook. I can use the space to do my private chefing, which yep. I've been doing, yep. and destroying my. Even though I have a, a really like awesome <laughs> kitchen at the house built to do parties and whatnot, <laughs> the wife, you know, not huge fan of the constant fill the fridge and all right. that going on. Uh, and I'm like, oh, this would be perfect. There's plenty of storage, you know, for that little space. We had two walk-ins and. Um, and even though the place I sold it to had destroyed the kitchen equipment and everything, they basically took all the awesome shit I had in there and replaced it with crap. So essentially I have a 36 inch flat top 
in an oven that only goes to 375 if it stays like regular. If it like stays calibrated. Yeah. Alto sham. Oh, there's no calibration. That's that that ended long ago. And that's basically it as far as cooking goes. A little tiny fryer that I hate to use because I don't ever turn the hood on. But um, yeah, and uh, and then the tornado hit. And so we lost some business and that sucked. And uh, and then we were like, all right, well, I'm in a great opportunity because I have all these friends that have lost their restaurants. Right. And so we ended up, we were going to be, we were going to pop up something called the displaced bar and basically bring people in that needed to work. And I didn't want to work. And it was like, so I'll open up a bar. You guys come run it, you know, and I'll buy the stuff. I'll bring the food in, bring a cook in, bring this. We'll just run it until your place gets back open. Wow. We'll vary the stats. We'll vary the people. We'll do whatever needs to happen. Uh, And so we had that lined up in between the people that hadn't, you know, canceled their pop-ups because of the tornado. Right. And, uh, and then a month later, COVID hit. (laughs) So, I mean, we actually never, never got any of that open. It was all going to start in March. And uh, yeah, so beginning of March, COVID hit. Which was a great idea, though, by the way. I love that idea of the displaced bar. That's Oh, yeah. And it was perfect. I mean, that's what the spot was perfect for, you know, is give young chefs a chance to showcase their abilities, give old chefs a chance to um, come in and be like, hey, I'm not dead yet and uh and then you know help out when it needs to be you know helped out and you know the beauty of me owning the space of having no employees was you know my overhead was really manageable right and i don't need to do a ton to pay the bills now right you know i need to do more than i've done in the last year yeah because you know I'm, i haven't worried about generating revenue since all this started right it's really just been about paying the bills paying the bills paying the bills and um and we were in that direction and then COVID hit and that you know changed the game again. Uh, yeah. But now we're starting to get back to that direction again. So uh and I'm going on a total tangent from what my whole career path. Right. Uh, but the hope is uh to have a concept that is uh my first real financial like large financial success combat concept to allow me to get back into the food policy game, which I really love. Um, That's incredible. And really start pushing that, you know, all those things that I had done for years. It just got to the point where I was using all my free time, all my time donating to do all this policy work. And uh, it was just too much. And, you know, I, I just got burned out. You um, know, um, as I hear you talk about that, it's so exciting because, you know, in essence, what you're thinking about is, you know, how do I use this venture, you know, insert chef here to really finance what you really want to go do. Right. Right. Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? So yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And what it, what it allows me to do is like, so I've had this concept in the back of my head for 10 years Yep. from what, you know, you said it earlier where you go, you know, you sit somewhere and you have an epiphany where you're at a restaurant. So my uh, buddy and I, the same one that I built stuff with, um, you know, we would drive up to Nanta. We would camp our way up the coast with our kids. We did it for about 10 years while they were little and we could right. all three fit in the back seat. Right. So they were like six and eight at the time. And uh, because it was me and I'm like, we're not going to fast food. We're not stopping at all these random places. Like, right. where is the cool? And we instilled this in my in our kids. So now when they go on trips, they hunt for the super cool places you know, so by the time they were 12 and 13, they were finding the restaurants, not, not me. 
right. that are off on the set, even if it's 10 miles off the road. It's like, oh, hey, dad, you know, here's this cool cafe where, you know, they do chicken waffles in Pennsylvania. And they say they were the first chicken waffle place in the country. Let's go there. You know, and like you go find this place. So we That's awesome. Oh, yeah, it's so great. So we tooled into somewhere in the mid-Atlantic. And I don't remember where it is. But uh, again, my buddy pulled up the picture of it. He still has the pictures of it. Uh, a 1930s burger joint. And, uh, you know, they had $3.73 burgers, you know, add cheese for nine cents. And, you know, broken down like that. Right. Fries, killer milkshakes, all that stuff. And we're sitting there and, uh, you know, he and I are automatically taking our fries and dipping them in our milkshakes. Of course. Yeah. Right. Of course. You all, of course. And you the do. kids are like, ew, what are you doing? We're like, oh no, you totally have to try this. Like you don't know. Yeah. yeah. You don't know. And so yeah. they tried They're like, oh my God. And so we sat there that, and you know, for the next 20 minutes eating lunch, talking about how we need to, somebody needs to open up fry cream, which is essentially French fries and ice cream. So uh, after 10 years of joking about this concept, because it's never gone away, I'm, I'm opening it in three weeks. And we're opening Fry Screen out the window on 12 South with funky, like homemade soft serve. Like I'm making the soft serve and kick-ass French fries. And then what we're going to have is um, you can basically get, for the kiddos, you can get a cone with sprinkles. Or if you're an adult, you can get a cone with like, maple brown sugar crust or a bourbon cinnamon crunch or you can get a basket of fries or you get fry cream which you can get like natural hot fries oh my god that you dip into the ice cream or you can get wasabi pea dusted fry and put a dollop of caramel on the bottom of your ice cream so you get this multi-layered approach so it's a side it's it's a total diversion from what i've ever done but at the same time, like I can't do what I want to do right. unless I'm well funded. Yep. And what I want to do, unless I have a huge bat, you know, a huge group behind me. Yep. It is all none of it's gonna, none of it at the moment will ever get me to that super well funded point where you want to be where I can act on those things. Yep. So I need this kind. So the plan is pop up. It's a it's a three-phase plan based on all the things that I've learned about in my years. I'm doing it as a pop-up for the first three months where we'll get to experiment the efficiencies. So we'll experiment with the right packaging, experiment with the right size cone, with all the different ways it works. Are we going to call out the orders or do we need a ticket system? Do we set it up this way this week? You know what? We need to rearrange it and set it up this way. And then after three months, uh, we'll shut down and I'll go to Nantucket and then come back and we'll open it up full time branded packaging, merchandise, be open full-time to run through the end of the season because it'll be seasonal. Close it in November. uh, And from November until the start of next season, find a second location that's a show kitchen, set up the franchise game, and start selling franchises next year because I don't want to run 20 of them. And that's not my skill set. I can run two of them. I can do that efficiently. But what I can do is have it set up for other people to run. Right, make it turn food cost. Yeah. And I make everything. So then they'll buy it back for me, which is another revenue generation. But low food cost, low labor cost, unnecessary to have massive skilled labor because all the food is done and uh, super small footprint. It can sidetrack to a fleet of mobile trucks. So whereas if you don't want to buy it, 
for uh, a long-term franchise, why don't you just go ahead and lease this truck for the summer and go follow fish and set up outside every fish show and you buy our franchise, we get a percentage of your sales and, you know, we have all the precautions in place. Of course. You can be a business owner and travel with fish at the same time. And we can either build those trucks out for people or just have the plans for them to build it out themselves. And there's just lots of ways. And then the retail side of the fry dust, fry wax, where we do, um, we set it up. Um, our logo is, uh, I don't have the exact logos with me, but uh, we're getting, I'm actually, it might even be accessible. Our second brand, um, all the three good ones, the ones that we like that we're going to are uh, at the store right now. But essentially, like, this is our groovy French fry saucer character. Can you hold up a little bit? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, we have very different, like, different, all the di- all the different logos. Right. Essentially, it's because I, I love to surf. And a lot of the things I do is, like, surf that one's too crazy, but, you know, the nice. family of them. Yeah. But the best tagline underneath serves up. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just, you know, it's super fun. And what I wanted was, and what everybody wants post-traumatic life event is nostalgia. Right. They want things that make them feel good, that make them think of their family. And so I was like, I'm doing this concept, which brings the two of America's greatest food traditions, soft serve ice cream and French fries together, yeah. as they should be in a very yeah. happy <clears throat> and, uh And doing it with this nostalgic look and, you know, how do we get people to just feel good about coming by and right. it's not for people, um, you know, it's, you know, six bucks for a cup and plus a couple of toppings and the whole fry screen package together is maybe $9 or $10 where you get a good basket of fries and a cup of, you know, the soft serve I'm making is ridiculous. homemade soft serve. I mean, oh it's, it's, yeah. And the difference is unbelievable between the mixes. Right. And the homemade stuff, and it's not easy to make. I mean, it's like hardcore science to get it nailed. Right. The, but like the vanilla I have right now is there's no soft serve out there like it. I mean, it's it's vanilla front to front to end. I mean, it's rich. It's all the stuff light. I mean, it's everything it should be. And fry cream opens in about three weeks. Yeah, uh, end of April, and like I said, it's gonna open it. I have, I'm super busy this spring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, my plan was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but that's not going to happen. So it'll be, you know, full weekend sometimes, and maybe it's only Friday night sometimes. Right. We've got a 18 year old turning 18. I got one turning 18, one turning 16 and a high school graduation all happening. Wow. So it's just like, yeah, it'll be sporadic. But again, beauty of the pop-up space, you know, people are, it's not, they don't have the same expectations they do if we were just saying we're opening this concept come check it out whereas when you stumble in the beginning it it negatively affects your business right when you stumble out of the gate as a pop-up there's no stumbling if the long if the line is long, oh oh, it's a pop-up it's cool if we run out of something oh it's a pop-up it's cool absolutely nobody cares because it's a short time thing and people you know because pop-ups can't be perfect no they can't be and and it's a great, well, and it's a great opportunity. Obviously, this is one of the reasons you're doing it is to figure out what works. You know, what do we need to tweak? Yep. You know, what's yeah. uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, keep, so when we go to sell next year, you know, in year two to start selling franchises, 
Absolutely. You know, we have a show store that will be set up perfectly. Right. And we have with the numbers. Like, here are the numbers. Here's what the numbers we project. Here are what the numbers will be, yeah. uh, depending on where, you, if you choose the right location. Now, if you don't choose a good location, of course. that's of on course. you. It's not on me. But, right, uh, right. And it's a huge profit margin, which uh, is unusual in our business. Well, it's 18 well, to 22%. You, you've got two of the items that are the highest profit margin items in the business, right? You've got yeah. fries and you've got frozen dairy. So, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, that's... when you add 40% air to your product, it's a strong <laughs> profit margin. It's a strong profit margin. That's amazing. Um, well, please keep me posted on that because yeah, it, once you know, have a little more solid, I may want to come down and check it out. So I'd love to yeah. come down there and meet you in person too and be able to check it out, maybe take some pictures and help you kind of tell the story. So I'd love to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing I know after all these years is what I don't know. Right. And, um, you know, like I'm really good at this part. I'm really good at making awesome food. I'm good at this. Yep. Uh, but when it comes down to, you know, pulling up the Excel sheets and breaking the business side now. Sure. Not, not my, that's not my skill set. And I'm aware yeah. of that. And I'm, yeah. You know, at the point when we come to the franchise game, I'm going to bring on a franchise player who's like, sure. I've taken this and turned it into a franchise. And we sold this many stores. I've taken this one and we turned it into a franchise. I'm like, all right. Right. Like, either you're coming aboard or consulting or whatever way Something. that works. Yeah. I'm not going to try to do it myself because I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And no, that's I'm awesome. And I know that part now. So, <laughs> you know, 10 or 20 years ago, I've been like, oh, I can do this. I'm good. But, you know, the reality is, is, you know, you can't do everything. You can't. And you learn what you're and you learn what you're really great at. Have have yeah. uh, have you ever seen the movie Chef with yeah. uh, John Favreau? And yeah, I, I love that movie. That's um, a great one. And something you just said made me think of this scene in the movie where, um, you know, he's just getting ready to launch his truck and they're selling Cubano sandwiches. And uh they're doing it for free, right? They're having like a free lunch, right? Yeah. And his son, you know, he sends out a Cubano that's a little overdone, right? The yeah. toast on the bread is just not quite right. Yeah. And he pulls him outside of the truck and he has this conversation with him, right? About how he knows he's not good at everything. You know, he knows that, but he's good at this. And he's able to connect with people through the preparing and the making of food. And, you know, explains it all to him in a way that, you know, a little kid can understand. And then he said, now, should we have sold that Cubano? Should we have sold that sandwich? And he's like, no, chef. And he's like, all right, that's right. So let's get in there and cook. Right. So it's just, again, it's just, it just made me think of that because it's such yeah. a, such a powerful story. Right. I mean, it really is. It was a great, your, your best form of marketing is always going to be your operations. Um, yeah. You know, you can, you can have all the slickest, you know, Instagram, social media stuff out there you want. You can do a lot of the creative stuff. You know, you can do billboards, you can do a lot of, you can do radio. None of that matters if someone walks into your location and it runs like crap, you know, <laughs> which, which again is the advantage of the pop-up. I mean, even yeah. at Chipotle, when we used to do store open, they don't, this is not a thing anymore because you, you can only get your ass kicked so many times before you realize okay, that's probably not a great idea, but uh <laughs> they used to do free burrito days. So, yes. you know, it was always like the day before we opened and people were just lying down the block. You can imagine that you can only come in, you can only, you know, you couldn't get chips and guac. It was just either you could do like one of a couple of burritos and drink. Right. So it's just really simple operation, but so you $20,000 worth of burritos, right. Everyone gets their ass kicked and everyone goes home thinking, Oh, that was really cool. But what did really benefit us? Well, 
the benefit was it gave us a chance to practice. You get some real reps with some real life guests, which was, right. which was awesome. The downside of that was, is that the guests who would have normally come in when we were opening saw all that happen. And they were like, this is a terrible idea. I'm not coming back here for six months. if This is how it's going right. to be. But when you do a pop-up, that's very different, right? Yeah. Because people know it's limited. They know a Chipotle is not going anywhere, right? But they know a pop-up might not be there the next day, right? So you get that sense of that increased excitement around it. And, and I, I just think it's a really great idea. Now there's, there's, a, there's a magic formula of variety of concept versus frequency of offering times uh, hours of operation. Wow. And uh, we've pretty much nailed it down to depending on the season. It's basically you can pop up a concept between four to six weeks, every four to six weeks, one night for three to five hours and anything more than that. And it becomes expected. And the first time you see numbers drop, pull it for a few months. So I'm actually going to do one next Friday that I haven't done since last October. Okay. And I'll do five grand in two and a half hours. Wow. And uh, with me, a 16 year old, an 18 year old and a buddy that pours beer. And, wow. and that's it. And I mean, I haven't hired people all year. I mean, it's my kids help me out. My actually she's 15. She'll be 16 in three weeks, but she's the most badass kitchen person I got. She runs the door and don't mess with her. I love it. She'll met, she'll tell you what to do in the kitchen. She'll do it. She's been doing that since she was about nine. I she love it. This loco off the bus and, and, that's fantastic that's fantastic but it's just uh you know and it's like oh i need you know i hadn't popped up a lot in the last month and i need a little revenue kick before yeah. we open ice cream and i'm like i'll bring this one concepts back and i mean i'll sell 80 quarts of chowder it's just like clam shack pop-up i do right I'll sell quarts of chowder and 150 lobster rolls and 40 pounds of fried clams in two and a half hours. And there'll be a line around the block 40 minutes before I open. That's and incredible. It's insane. And it's almost every time I do it, uh, except for the very last one I did in October post time change, because it got dark early. Oh, uh, right. And so, so when it got dark early, people were less apt to wait outside in the line. Uh, but I mean, I did it one day in pouring down rain and it didn't drop a lick and it was within that magic window. Yep. It was like, and that was the third or fourth one I'd done over a three month time span. Wow. So it was the combo of too many offerings. Yep. Uh, plus being aware of that time change and how it affects the psychology. Right. Of what we do. Right. And uh, I think we did one more of our other really successful pop-ups after that, the case of Berea one that day we did, set one of the first time we did that we did 700 tacos in three hours do you ever do like do you ever do like a pop-up um do you ever like a pop-up at events like i know um next next month or may i guess there's the owl music fest or something um coming up and uh, i didn't know if you ever did like events like that or do you just do it around town or okay nope around town wow nope i just just do me i just just do me where i'm at that's it good for you good for you yeah no let's i mean you know let's be real about events Unless you're getting paid to do it, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're paying you to be there, it's not worth it. Yeah. And I quit doing those. I quit doing those at taste. Makes total sense. Food bloggers and all that. Yep. Forget all those people. They're just out for free stuff. Yep. Makes total sense. It matters. And then it goes to what you were saying earlier. 
you know, fancy Instagrams, fancy this. My Instagram sucks. Like I take pictures <laughs> of written signs and, you know, bad printed out things. They're crappy pictures. My kids never stop berating me for it. Half the time there's spelling errors and grammar errors. And I'm like, screw y'all. Like I'm just getting the picture out there. Yeah, that's right. The prepping because I got shit going on. I'm like, and I just got to let people know, but it's almost become part of my brand. Like the poorly written sign. That's what like, I was going to say. Right. It's, like, it's part of my brand. So you know what? I don't do this well, but when you come here, it's going to be fucking awesome. And, and I mean, that's just what it is. Cause what I can do is what none of the other papas that come into my place do. You're going to get in and out. Right. Like when there's a line, you know, you might may wait 25 minutes to order because there are that many people. You're still getting your food in 20 minutes. But it's going to move. I, yeah. I, I know how to run it. I know how to run it efficiently and how to make sure that I'm set up to get the food out. And every time we do a new concept, it is literally like opening a new restaurant. Wow. So you're like, give me one or two runs on a concept and then forget it. It'll be like 10, 15 minutes and your food's out the door. Because I know how to design the menu and yep. to set it up for that. And uh, and these other guys that come in, they just, you know, they, they try too much. They try to overthink eat. it, overcomplicate yeah. it. Yep. Yep. So you can't do that. It's like three, four items, and that's pushing it. Uh, and just super simplify it and set it up assembly line style. You know, again, lessen some fast food. Right. That are relevant in today's food world. Yep. Um, you know, the stuff they've done, there's a reason they're a billion dollar industry. That's right. Uber successful. That's and right. There are efficiencies within that system that we need to look at to be beneficial and then incorporate it with this fine dining world that Dan Barber does. And yeah. I did years and all these people and say, let's, you know, we've done this. Now let's do this. Exactly. Combine the two to what our next food system will be. Right. I love it, Chef. This is this has been amazing. I, I I just I hear the excitement in your voice. I see it in you know on the Zoom call. It's just amazing. Right. Um, I love what I just love what you're doing, and and uh, I'm just honored to be able to help you tell the story a little bit. And, oh, thanks, uh, man. It's been yeah. fun. Um, you know, I am I am confident that even if your social media is not great, that they're going to be people who want to connect with you after hearing this podcast. So, what's the easiest way for them to find you? Honestly, that's for them it. to connect yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. The um, I had I kind of had two social media things. I've got the old Sloco Sammies, okay, which was my old page that you know I only have like a few thousand followers. <laughs> you know what? That's all I need. It works. Um, and then I have a personal page that's the Green Taste, okay. Um, and I kind of use them both simultaneously. Nice. I don't do a lot of personal posting, so it's like, yeah. but it, there is some variation on the followers. Sure. On sure. Uh, and then for ice cream, I'm actually like, I'm building for ice cream in all the right ways. So there's its own social media entity for ice cream. Yeah. Um, that I'm just now building. Which will um, be important for franchising to have oh, a yeah, kind yeah. of brand voice and all that. So that's good. That's oh yeah. Awesome. Oh no. I've, I've learned my lesson and, <laughs> Uh, you know, like, and, and this one, like I've got a branding marketing guy, like I didn't do, yep. you know, yep. Yep. he's like, no, we need to do this element and that element and these elements tie each other together. Um, and actually was supposed to meet with him Monday and was under the weather, but, um, 
So I, he's got the brand done and he sent it to me at some point this morning, but um, the, the final brand look, but you know, he's doing that, you know, and it crosses over to the menu, Perfect. Over to the merchandise and there's elements that bring it all together. And, you know, this mix of hot and cold we have going and how they come together and it's like an explosion and he's got a, he's got an image for that. You know, he's doing it in all the right ways Wow! Uh, and has done other companies and is, is very successful. Um, so yeah, now fry cream, like I said, fry cream is a, it is, um, I'm basically doing all, all the things that I never did before. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> right. I've learned my lessons and I'm like, you know, this is how, you know, I've got like a, a super laid out plan for every step of the way with all the contingencies, you know, and normally I'm a seat of my, you know, fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. I'm like, Oh, let's, let's pop this up this week. This sounds like fun. Yeah. Let's try this. Yeah. Now this one is, this one is step-by-step step laid out uh, awesome. because if it does what I think it can do, um, then I can go do what I want to do, which is really work on this whole policy and Free policy yeah. climate stuff and, feeding people and, you know, all that good stuff where we need more voices, That's right. more voices on the Hill, so to speak. 100%. Well, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for this. This has been so great. Um, yeah. Super just, fun. Yeah, no, really, really was fun to hear the story and, and keep posted too. And let me yeah. know when price cream is going to actually, you know, when you think you'll do your first one and I'll, 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 I'll come to Nashville for it. Yeah. So, tentatively April 3rd, April 23rd is the first pop-up day, but April 23rd. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll Perfect. Perfect. Well, Chef, thank you so much again for the time today. Have a great day. All right. I'll definitely follow your Instagram. Um, And I'll put both channels uh, on the show notes of the podcast too, so people know how to get in touch with you if they want to. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. All right, man. Have a good one. Chef, thanks. Have a good one. Thanks for joining me on the Cutting Onions podcast today and in this conversation with Chef Jeremy Barlow in Nashville, Tennessee. I love what Chef Jeremy's doing and his heart and passion for food policy and creating accountability around the supply chain, as well as just all the exciting culinary things he's doing. Everything from taste and slow co to now fresh cream, which is his new venture that we talked about on the podcast on 12 South in Nashville. I'm looking forward to getting down there and supporting Jeremy in that effort and hope you will too when you're in town next. So thanks again. And please join me again next week for an exciting conversation with Max Cotton from Dodo Brands. See you next week on the Cutting Onions Podcast. The music in this podcast, Walking Strong, was created and composed by Chris Zimmer.